Okay, so uh, welcome back. And, and uh, today we're going to be talking about state nationalism, or otherwise known as nation building. And uh, a lot of what you'll hear will again sound a bit like coming from the modernist perspective, you know, starting from the state, moving towards the nation. Uh, and I will talk a little bit about ethno symbolism just at the beginning, but then we'll move on to talking about nation building. Um, which, I think I'm going to make the argument that this isn't purely a modernist thing, and that ethno-symbolists would agree with a lot of what's being said here as well. Uh, and that is that the state does play a very important part in building the nation and national consciousness, even if it isn't necessarily the whole picture. So just to put you in into the, uh, the general framework here, so we talked last time, or, t or two lectures ago, about uh, the origins of ethnic groups, you know, kingdoms and, and diasporas and sects. So we talked about the more of a bottom-up process. We then, before that, had talked about the evolution of the modern state, um, theories of nationalism. And now we're going to move, again, kind of flipping and flopping between these two perspectives, the ethnic and the state. We're now moving back to the state, uh, looking at nation-building by the state. So a classic example of that state-to-nation paradigm is Italy, uh, which was unified in 1870 or 71, I believe. It was happening in the 1860s with this Risorgimento. And uh, there's this phrase which an Italian journalist named Massimo De Zelio, I don't know if I pronounced that right, wrote, it says, uh, we have Italy. So they've unified Italy politically. Now we must make Italians. The, the meaning of that phrase clearly is that even though they've done the political work of unifying this territory, there was a lot of cultural work needed in order to inculcate a sense of national identity down the social scale and from the north of Italy out to the peripheries in the south in particular, where it was felt that people didn't really have a national identity because Italy had been ruled by, by many different empires in the past, carved up, if you like, and therefore there wasn't this common sense of national identity, repeated by uh, the Italian nationalist Mazzini. Uh, and so that's kind of a prelude into talking about nation formation from the top down, from the state down. It's the classic model, if you like, of uh, nation formation. And that's relevant to when we start to talk about failed states, for example, the Libyas and Iraqs of this world. Um, ideally, what they'd like to do is, is a successful one of these, if you like, a, a nation building. So we're going to want to know what it is that seems to be uh, key ingredients for the building of a successful nation, why some of them succeed and others fail, is a big question. It's probably a, one of the central questions of nationalism. Um, so failure then to uh, consolidate and build the nation can lead to failed states and separatist movements, which we're very familiar with. Uh, even though we haven't talked a whole lot about that, we will, in subsequent sessions, talk about secession and breakup of states. Okay, and so a lot, a lot of this is then the idea that you start with a small elite at the state level uh, that then spreads that national identity to the mass of the population, and that's particularly important. Now, before we get into talking about that, it's worth saying that the ethnosymbolists <coughs> do have an answer to this question of how important was the state and nation building, and they would often say, well, Actually, what the nation builders did was they kind of reconfigured and built upon the existing structures that were laid down by their predecessors in the pre-modern periods. So had already um, an ethnic building, ethnic origin, or ethnic state building phase in many parts of the old world that predates and shapes the subsequent nation building. And, and here's just a few examples. Um, so France from the Franks onwards, England from the Anglo-Saxons under King Alfred, Castile and Spain from the 10th century, Poland, early China, or medieval Japan under the Tokugawa Shogunate, as examples of those kind of pre-modern ethnic states that had already started to form and upon which the nation then builds. Uh, and so that there already was a certain amount of nation, not nation building, but call it ethnic state building that had occurred through those pre-modern forms of communication and state formation, including spreading of religion, language, history, and to some extent even identity down the social scale in those kingdoms uh, prior to the modern state. 
uh, two varying degrees of success. One barometer of success might be the extent to which a, uh, an empire was able to spread its religion. So to what extent were the Ottomans able to uh, convert the Yugoslavs to Islam and seem to be more successful in the lower elevations than in the higher elevations. That's one example, perhaps. Um, but even an ethno-symbolist would admit that integration uh, into a common identity, a shared identity in the pre-modern period was imperfect and was not as uh, extensive as took place later in the modern era. Uh, and so this is kind of the point that Anthony Smith makes. So Smith says, you know, it, it wasn't the case that um, nations were built on nothing, as the Gellners and Hobsbawms would suggest. However, yes, there was already a, a tradition, you know, these pre-modern ethnic traditions. However, there's no question that modernity adds something very new. It adds a sort of step change in the level of integration of the mass of the population into an identity, particularly bringing in the masses uh, into, into the nation. So for Smith, he talks about this triple revolution. So three key things happen in the modern period. The first is the uh, incorporation of the population by the state, the rational bureaucratic state. This is kind of the Max Weber uh, bureaucratization process. So the state is, is, is deepening and extending its, its reach. Uh, the industrial capitalist model is also uh, extending its reach and pushing aside the earlier uh, feudal aristocratic model. And then finally, you get uh, an official language, standardization, homogenization of a culture within the boundaries of the state, and extending to mass education later on. So that's kind of, those are three big processes which really change the consciousness of the populations. Um, so the triple revolution. So we'll take each strand in turn. And the first one is what's happening with the state, and particularly the state bureaucracies, which if you remember from the session, the session that we did on the state reading, increasingly you get with absolutism the development of these more merit-based bureaucracies. They're not just based upon who you know, but also perhaps based on writing exams. Uh, civil service exams and so on. So you get a more professional bureaucracy, which then starts to expand, and then you get some of these institutions. Um, centralized military is very important, a national military, which is based on uh, mass participation rather than based on hiring mercenaries. Hiring mercenaries was the old model um, that was more often used, um, including national military training schools. And then later, mass conscript armies, the most famous early example, which was French levee en masse uh, of Napoleon showed the rest of Europe that this was the way to go. It was much more successful than the elite um, mercenary militaries that were functioning elsewhere. Clearly showed that those were inferior. So mass conscription. Uh, a uniformity of law and authority, so you don't have different laws in each district that you pass through. We try and get a uniform set of laws, which also smooths, incidentally, uh, capitalism. Um, the extension and expansion of the state, you see the appearance of phenomena such as customs, border control, post office, and so on. It's often quite late. It's often not until the 20th century that you get some of this, including passports and, and rigorous passport controls, borders becoming more and more firmly demarcated uh, by geographers. And actually, everything becomes uh, and this is the term reflexivity, a lot sh more sharply defined. And you get you know, censuses, drawing of maps, demographic records improving all the time. And people start to become aware of these records. And that builds national consciousness. People start to know, aha, this is, this is where Italy or France is on a map. And this is where the other countries are. They learn it in school. People didn't read before. I mean, most people didn't really read until we get into the late 19th and into the early 20th century. So you're, you're getting literacy and people are starting to understand, OK, this is us. This is the, the nature of where we are on the map. Um, this is our population size in relation to the Germans and the Russians. OK. Uh, so that's all. these are all important processes we take for granted now, but we're still ongoing at the time. Um, and then in some countries, you get an extension of the vote to the mass of the population, which happened in this country, I believe, in 
1886, I think, uh, in a number of waves. Or, and, but it just doesn't happen everywhere. Some countries remain autocracies. Uh, so you, but this is, even if you don't get democracy, the principle of political legitimacy uh, shifts from the divine right of kings, the ruler being having some divine connection to, to God, to the people. So you have, even if you have an autocrat or a, a constitutional monarch, they're ruling in the name of the people. And they have to be seen to be expressing the general will use those terms, the general will of the people. So uh, sometimes it's democratic, but sometimes it's not. And even when it's not, they're still talking about the people, the nation. So that's a different principle of political legitimacy than the old principle, which was I have a divine right to rule regardless of whether I speak the same language as you. That doesn't matter. Uh, that's out the window now. In fact, you do have to speak the same language. You do have to represent the people, which is a, a big change. And so once you have to, once the people becomes uh, the fount of sovereignty, it, the question then becomes, who are the people? How do we define them? Is it, is it language? Is it religion? Whatever. That, all of those characteristics become that much more important. Who's an insider? Who's an outsider? All those questions actually become sharper. And, and Andres Pimmer argues very much that that also includes divisions within a country between the majority and minorities that division becomes sharper with this process of enumeration and, and standardization and definition. It all becomes, comes into sharper relief. Second aspect of this triple revolution is economic. So the first one was political, the second one was economic, the third one is cultural. So this one is to do with uh, a shift in the economy from feudalism to capitalism. This is sort of a Marxist thing, but still. Um, you can see the emergence of uh, a state which is involved in this capitalism. So it's not just the fact that there are factories and people are no longer bound to their lord, but they're selling their labor on the open market, moving around to, from the countryside to the cities. You've got to have that mobility of labor to have a capitalist system operating properly. Uh, so that's going on. But the state's also getting involved, so it's sponsoring uh, voyages of exploration and colonization, that's this term mercantilism. It's getting involved in setting up monopolies such as the power, uh, you know, hospitals and power supply and uh, maybe telecommunications. All of these monopolies are being set, set up, new regulations. And then as we get into the 20th century, even income taxes. So the first taxes were really customs and excise taxes, uh, but then you get in, uh, into the 20th century, we see the development of the income tax. Harmonious uh, one currency. In fact, a lot of what the European Union is trying to do now <coughs> was happening at the, at the state level in the 19th century. Single markets. Sound familiar? Uh, so all of these things, except it happens more successfully, uh, in many cases, more successfully at the national level than is clearly happening at the European level. Uh, and the other important point here is this idea of labor mobility, because as people move around between different regions, some of those dialect differences come into collision with each other, and people revert to what they have in common, which is the national language. So that helps to assimilate people into this common identity, uh, break down some regionalism. Cultural unification is very much generally about an official language. Uh, I know there are places like Switzerland which don't have one but might have two or more official languages, but still, generally you get an attempt to define an official language. And in the case of, say, Italy and, and France, this is the, the dialect of the center, which then, so Tuscany, let's say, in Italy, which then gets transposed and made into the official Italian, which will push out the other regional dialects. This will be the standardized official Italian. Uh, you then with literacy, part of what's going on here is not just the official language, but you then teach the official language in the schools. So don't speak your dialects, uh, Sicilian and Calabrian and whatever you can speak. Italian, the Tuscan dialect, uh, that's number one. Number two, uh, you get emerging on this a public sphere based around uh, a literate public who, who learned how to read in this national language. They're consuming books and newspapers, which are springing up. And that's giving you this feedback between better education and books and newspapers and that reading public. 
Um, and that's how the national consciousness is beginning to, to deepen and strengthen. So that's, that's also happening. Uh, in terms of state cultural institutions, galleries, museums, national academies, in the case of France in particular, they were trying to uh, decide which words were going to be part of standard French and which were not. So that idea of linguistic purification and uh, managing the language, which is much less the case in, in Britain, for example. All of those institutions also from the late 18th century, but in many countries it really isn't until the 19th or even the 20th centuries that these get going. Um, mass public education, beginning with primary school and only later going to secondary school. I think the Germans were the early, uh, were the uh, country that gets this going the earliest. I think Scandinavia and the US as well. Britain a little bit later. Mass public primary and then secondary education. And that's of course linked to this idea of being able to read the books and newspapers that are put out by the, uh, by not only the state, but also by private enterprise. And then actually more in the, towards the later part of the 19th century, we get these big public spectacles, uh, state commemorations, and Remembrance Day is coming up soon. That's one of them. As an example, I mean, granted, that's post-World War I, but these public ceremonies increasingly coming in from the 1870s. Uh, monument building, you know, more national monuments are springing up all the time. There's a real heyday of monuments from about 1880 to 19. 15. So if you go around London and all these monuments to war heroes, it's interesting. A lot of those were built in that period. Uh, and that was true in, in other European states as well. Uh, Eric Hobsbawm draws a lot of attention to that, claiming that this is it's only really as we get into the late 19th century that the masses are brought into the nation through these national days and commemorations and, and festivals. Uh, so you have that triple revolution. Um, and what's happening is societies are modernizing, going from uh, a shifting from these more local Gemeinschaft, face-to-face -face type communities to the Gesellschaft, mass society. And that shift, sociological shift, the rise of cities, movement to the cities, uh, leading to a more modern society. A lot of uh, sociologists have written about that, attorneys and Weber as well. Uh, it's a shift from a kind of local worldview to a national worldview. People are taking on a national type of identity, less than a less of a local identity. Now that's something we can debate, and ethno symbolists would say, well, actually, people also had not just a local identity, but something larger as well, even if it was less salient in their daily life, and even if they didn't read a newspaper. Uh, but anyway, that's that's certainly becoming more pronounced in this period, and very much this idea that. Um, the mass of the population who were basically not participating in politics, not involved in politics because they were tied to the land, living local lives. This idea is that they're ushered into history by all of those processes, the triple revolution, mass education, bureaucratization, capitalism. Those three things bringing the masses into the nation. And the growth of a public sphere, which then follows the news, criticizes the government, has political opinions, <coughs> forms political parties. That's all happening as well as a result of these uh, developments. And um, better communications, that's largely newspaper, and subsequent to that, telegraph, telephone, road system, etc. So all of these integrating things are going on, which are breaking down local boundaries and leading to a national worldview. Uh, and according to modernist writers, that actually changes the way people view the world. That, in fact, the whole sense of space and time is, is fundamentally altered. Uh, again, there's a, there's a debate between ethnosymbolists and modernists on this. Modernists are claiming that just the whole scale, speed, the fact that you now everyone owns a clock and a watch and they're moving quickly on the railways and uh, there are all these national commemorations. So people's sense of time is, is more linear, what's known as linear. So people think in terms of 100th anniversary of the French Revolution, 200th anniversary, so on. It's all about um, years that we can count in terms of numbers, whereas in the past, it was more uh, what, what they call circular time. That is, it's Christmas time now, it's harvest time, whatever. It's religious 
there isn't a, a number attached to that. It's just sort of the rhythm of life. So that, that argument about a change in people's perception of time and also space because they're, they're inhabiting a larger sphere, not just their local area. Uh, Along with that, particularly the people moving to the cities, but not only people moving to the cities, also to the towns, uh, people are getting politicized. Parties are starting to mobilize, and that's um, also changing people's outlook. Um, and Linz contrasts this na new nation building with the older state building of the pre-modern world, which he thinks is, a, is a quite a different process. What's distinct, he's arguing, in nation building is that this is really bringing the masses into this subjective idea of the nation. It's not just this distant state, uh, but actually it's changing people's consciousness, which the earlier state building did not. Again, that's a, a matter to be contested by ethnosymbolists. Uh, we now, I, I now want to sort of move to talk a little bit about what happens to geographic peripheries, because that's really where we get a lot of separatism. And when we talk about failed states, a lot of this is to do with peripheries that are not integrated properly or that resist that integration. And so uh, we want to pay a lot of attention to what's going on between the center, which is trying to spread this nationalism, uh, the, the political elites trying to spread this nationalism, and the resistance that's meeting in some cases in the peripheries. Uh, and why it is the case that in some places this nation building succeeds and in other places it fails. Um, and what's happening then is so as, this, as the nation is being spread by the state out from the center along these roads and waterways into the hinterlands, uh, does it have, a, have an easy time or does it have a hard time? Uh, and there are a whole bunch of different things that might determine whether it has an easy time or a hard time. One of the points I mentioned at the last end of that last slide was whether, if you're, if you're going into a periphery, if their dialect is similar to the quote-unquote national language, like Tuscan or the French that's spoken around Paris, uh, then probably, well, you could argue that it's going to be an easier job to assimilate them into the national language than if they speak something radically different, like Basque. Uh, that's going to be different, because it's a different language family. That's at least one theory. So in terms of peripheries, if we just think about, I mean, if we think about the 19th century in Europe, place like Brittany or the Scottish Highlands or the Basque country of France and Spain, I mean, these would be seen as peripheries because they're quite far from the capital city where the nationalists, uh, the nationalist movement tends to spread from. Um, and we can look today to uh, other parts of, of you know, Pakistan or China or whatever as examples of these kinds of peripheries that are poorly or imperfectly integrated into the state. Uh, so how does this occur? And, and with We'll look at France. There's, there's a book, Peasants into Frenchmen, which I'll be drawing upon a lot, uh, which really tries to look at how the French state expands in the 19th century. and says, actually, it was really only quite late in the day that the whole population started using French as their native language. Um, it took a long time, even for France, which is the paradigm case, uh, to assimilate these peripheries. So if, that, if the paradigm case had a hard time of it, and even in the 1960s, we get Corsican and, and some Breton. Nationalist movements and some vast cultural nationalism. So even in France, it's not a perfectly smooth process, uh, especially in Corsica, where there's even been a bit of violence in the last few decades. Um, but one of the questions is, what determines whether nation building is successful or whether it's going to meet resistance from the peripheries? Um, and in a way, uh, it's it's a little bit of a race, if you can imagine, between. So modernity comes to uh, both the peripheries and the center. And if the peripheries kind of wake up in time, they can get the jump on the center. If the center is actually more organized, and if modernity is happening more in the center, then maybe they can successfully nation build. But if the peripheries are organized, then they can actually start their own nationalist movements against the state. Um, and that's kind of what happens in some instances where we have divided societies. So one of the the questions that we'll want to ask is, who is more organized, the center or the periphery, when it comes to modernity? So these tri this triple revolution of uh, mass, mass uh, cultural change, public education, official language, and then bureaucratization and capitalism. And that's not just happening at the center. It's also happening, to some extent, in the peripheries. And if the peripheries 
they're also aware of these ideas of nationalism, uh, which are which are circulating in the late 18th, 19th century, and so they are also influenced. So again, um, this is the question: who will kind of win, if you like? I mean, it's not entirely. Easy. Yeah, go ahead. I mean, do you think it can just be boiled down to the willingness of the state to use force? Well, that's oh, the no. process. I mean, in the 60s, you know, that sort of thing stops to an extent. <laughs> Whereas inside China, it's working because they're using force. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, Corsica's not, it's not a mass military uprising, right? Yeah. So there have been maybe four people killed in Corsica. If you look at Xinjiang and Tibet, you know, Xinjiang, there are a lot more Chinese killed. So you could argue, actually, things are better in Corsica than Xinjiang. Uh, even though the Chinese military clearly has a pretty firm grip on Xinjiang. Yeah. But I don't think military is the difference, really. Although, if the, state, if the state pushes militarily and tries to repress the population militarily, that can lead to a military response. So in that sense, the French really haven't pushed hard militarily in Corsica at all. I mean, it's, you know, it's, they haven't responded. So I think maybe that's, that's making in the 60s, there was the Free Wells Army. Well, and they, and there was holiday homes were burned down. Right. So all the campaign in the 60s yeah. and 70s in Wales. Yeah, well. that's true. That's true, but the British Army didn't march in there like no. Northern Ireland. So it's, but yeah, you're right. It's okay, so. Um, okay, so just to look at the, the work of uh, Weber uh, and, and to, to talk about rural France, it's worth suggesting that there was a very gradual shift. Um, of these regions to French identity. So here's just a few quotes from the book where there's, they're talking about a French infantry battalion in 1843. And these are generally taking place in the south or southwest of France, which is an area that generally spoke different dialects from Paris, and where almost they had to have an kind of internal pacification and assimilation of the population. Here they're talking about uh, you know, poor, backward, wild savages. You know, in, in, this is a part of France. And, and in 1832, Haussmann uh, talking about a district, again, in the southwest, where there are no roads or landmarks. So really suggesting that a lot of what is present-day France was quite poorly integrated. And they even used terms like nations to talk about regions of France. Uh, and this is kind of a point modernists might make. Well, the meaning of nation is different. What we think of as region now could have been a nation in the past. Um, and the French nation builders really hit quite a few obstacles, including the fact that a lot of people just didn't speak French. They spoke dialects, which had varying degrees of mutual intelligibility, but generally weren't, you know, were, were not easy to understand. So uh, a quarter of the population spoke no French at all. Um, this is in the mid-19th century. 10% uh, of school children didn't speak any French. 40% um, of the population, so in addition to the 10% uh, who spoke no French, you had the 40% who kind of understood French but couldn't write it. Uh, and then in terms of people who actually use French as their active mother tongue, uh, only half the population as late as 1870 uh, when the Third Republic emerges. And so much of France was really a collection of these could call them ethnic groups, you could call them regions. I think in some cases, the claim to being a separate ethnicity, is, ethnic group is stronger than in other cases. So Alsatian is a German dialect, Flemish is a Dutch dialect, uh, Breton is, a, is a, a Gaelic, Celtic dialect. Similarly, you have Basque, which is a totally different language family from Latin. And then you have the Provençal, Bernay, Gascon, uh, Languedoc. So you have quite a range of different languages, and these are taking up large parts of particularly the south of France. Um, and so just to, oh yeah, go ahead. I'm just wondering, I mean, because it seems contrasted to England, where as far as I know, that doesn't seem to be the case. Is that just because England was smaller, or is it because the, the English language was established at a later date? I mean, right. the Saxons. I mean, it just seems funny, especially as the reading we were doing was talking one person speaking with English as the first nation. I mean, was there any diversity in English as well? I, I don't know. Yeah, I think that's a good, I mean, you can, aside from the places like Cornwall and the Isle of Man, um, I 
think you're right there that actually much of uh, present-day England were speaking, I mean, I'm not aware of anything as distinct as what they had in France in terms of Provençal. Maybe others will know more than I, but I think that might be testament to that successful ethnic state building, pre-modern ethnic state building. Who knows? I mean, we don't know, but it does seem that England had less of this ethno-linguistic diversity. If you, as long as we're not considering the Celtic periphery yeah. and Cornwall, then yeah, that's true. Um, so the core in France really is, in this, this uh, hexagon is kind of the area that is what you might call a French ethnic core, which is expanding over time. So this is actually slightly bigger. Now what these maps show are uh, the parts of France where you had high patriotism and subsequent maps will show kind of people's willingness to serve in the military and pay tax. These indicators of patriotism, which were all strongest in this zone in the kind of north central part of France. And in the areas that were different, so that you have the Flemish region, the Alsatian region, the kind of Provence, um, Catalan and then Basque, I mean, I'm just roughly, and then you've got Brittany over here. So you in those peripheries, you can see that uh, they, this is Patois-speaking communes, 1863. You can see there's quite a lot of France in 1863 where there's a lot of dialect being spoken and not a lot of French. Uh, but there's an attempt by the state, especially after 1870, but even before then, through mass public edu education to get people to speak French and not their dialect. So you have punishment. So people caught speaking dialect in class uh, were shamed by you know, putting a brick on the desk, the various kinds of techniques attempting to homogenize and assimilate the population. And um, but what was also important, I think, in the case of France was France was a very prestigious language and culture. So it was clearly the language of advancement. And so this was seen as a, a route out of poverty, a route to social success. And that helped. That helped the language spread. It helped its acceptance. And you have a big expansion of the primary school system, which again helps to inculcate the population. So by 1863, only 25% of primary school age children were not in school. So that's pretty good. By 1863, that's helping to inculcate the population into French. Um, we, all, we want to ask a question, what was going on in these peripheries? What were the Breton and the Alsatian and the Provençal? What were those elites doing at this time? And they see their kids being educated in French. Did they, why didn't they react? Uh, and the question, I mean, the answer is that in some cases they didn't react. In, some, in other cases they did. Uh, so in the case of the Provençals, there was an attempt to compile a dictionary and to have a literary uh, revival in, in the late 1850s and thereafter. But by that time, French had already advanced too far and made too many strides in the South to, to be able to, to hold back the tide. So it was too late, uh, too little too late for the Provençal language. Um, and, and again, that prestige of French really helped it. Maybe in another country that was developing, the language would be less prestigious. And maybe that was true in, I don't know, the Baltic states, or maybe it was true in in southern Europe, I don't know. It, it depends where we're talking, but it's in countries where the high language was less prestigious, maybe it was harder uh, for people to see this as a language, a vehicle for advancement. Uh, so it seemed to be for them. Now there was Breton nationalism, of course, we could Catalan, uh, or at least literary revivalism. Uh, and in the case of the Basque and Catalans, that was cross-border with Spain. So there were these uh, societies that had sprung up in the 1850s, 60s, 70s, uh, connecting the south of France to the north of Spain, uh, the uh, Catalan areas and Basque areas. So that was partly a, a successful thing. Now, it's, so may, in, in the case of the Basques and Catalans in France, uh, the fact that they had their cousins across the border who were much less uh, generally, especially in the 20th century, much less well integrated into Spanish nationalism. Might have, might have been decisive. Uh, but you know, some of the things we might ask are, could there have been a, a Gaston or Provencal nationalism? Um, for an ethnocentralist, they might say, well, what were their myths and memories? What were their political traditions? Did they look back to a kingdom that had ruled them for many centuries? 
did that have any grounding in institutions, in literature, uh, in the population? Those would be the kinds of questions that they would ask. And they may, may say, well, maybe not. Maybe there was just the separate dialect, but it wasn't attached to clear geographic boundaries and political memories. And that's maybe why there was a problem. Or it just could have been they were not as organized as the French state. It was because they were facing a very prestigious language and uh, state, they were at a, a very steep disadvantage. Um, in terms of indicators, again, that Weber talks about a poor integration, he would, one of the uh, quotes that he has is from Breton peasants, where they didn't really have a clear idea of when the French Revolution was. They, if you'd ask these peasants, you know, do you remember the French Revolution? A lot of them would say, it happened a long time ago. They wouldn't say 1789. So there was a very poor knowledge of history in some of these outlying peripheries, which I think goes towards the modernist point about the idea that people uh, prior to the modern age didn't really have a clear sense of national history and memory, that they had a very kind of localized sense of identity. So this is sort of evidence that's used by Eugen Weber here, that, that things just kind of happened a long time ago. Yes, there was the revolution, but it happened a long time ago. I don't know when. Or their memory of pre-modern period of uh, Henry IV or the uh, um, War of Spanish Succession. These wars <coughs> were not really remembered. They were just uh, immortalized in, in popular sayings like uh, uh, Henry IV, which meant an old worn thing. So it wasn't as though people actually knew who Henry IV was. That wasn't meaningful to them. But there was just this survival as an expression. Uh, so this idea was that in the peripheries, there wasn't this coherent sense of French national history. Uh, people had very different narratives that they lived by. So they didn't have that historical narrative. And that also meant there was less attachment to the nation, and as a consequence, less willing to pay, less willingness to pay tax and serve in the military. And so that's, those are indicators that uh, Weber uses. So you see again uh, the survival into the late 19th century <coughs> of these dialect regions of southern and then also Brittany, southern France and Brittany. Uh, a couple of other maps that he, he uses. Uh, one is uh, hostility to the French national military. Uh, and that's centered pretty much in the same areas of the south and Brittany. Here it's uh, areas of patriotic sentiment up here and unpatriotic sentiment. Uh, as recorded by military officers. Um, and this is draft evasion, also centered in the south. Uh, yeah? Is the relevance to, you know how, well, the part which borders Germany yeah. seems to like the idea of joining the military and being the draft? Is that because right. they would be more scared of the Germans? or? No, well, I don't, I don't know. I haven't heard that necessarily. I don't, I don't think they'd be scared of the Germans. So much as, yeah, it's curious that they are mentioned here as draft evaders. Um, this is another map here that talks about lack of pay. Well, I mean, you have a little bit here now in, uh, I don't know if that's Alsace, I think it is, but I could be wrong. Uh, but it's not, I don't think that would be a major reason that they were scared of the, of the Germans. It's just a question. This is, these maps are used by Weber as indicators of parts of France that didn't really feel a strong national identity they didn't feel the strong identity, they didn't want to serve in the military. So. Uh, and this is another, uh, this is tax collection, how hard it was to collect tax. These areas didn't want to pay their tax. Uh, again, similar areas to the places that didn't want to serve in the military as of the late 19th century. So just showing, just in another way, how it was not a smooth path even for uh, the paradigm case of the French state. Um, however, having said all that, by the time we get to the late 19th century, the Third Republic, you could say nation building has succeeded to a large degree, that those dialects are starting to fade, less so in Brittany and, and in, in uh, Corsica and so on, but it's still, for the most part, succeeding, uh, partly because the peasantry sees dialect as kind of something backward compared to French, uh, French. so French is seen as the uh, language of advancement, and they want their children schooled in French. So that is a, a motor to assimilation. It feeds assimilation. Uh, French is seen as a language of modernity and learning, 
And so you want to learn that language to get ahead. It's not, there isn't the view that, oh, you don't want to learn French because that's a betrayal of your culture and your identity. That kind of talk, which is familiar to us now, uh, really wasn't prevalent. I mean, there was a little bit of it, but in order for that to be prevalent, you have to have counter-mobilizations on the periphery, and they have to be successful. And it doesn't appear that in most cases they were successful, either because they were too late or perhaps because there weren't sufficient, uh, sufficient organization in the peripheries or there wasn't, weren't sufficient political traditions and memories. Uh, so this attempt to revive Provençal uh, and to develop a literature in Provençal fails because the masses really want to read French. Um, you also get increasingly this movement of labor due to the capitalist system. So labor mobility of people around the country, Alsatian migrants uh, moving to other parts of France. So that helps to break down some of those differences as well. Um, and so then the question becomes who assimilates and who doesn't assimilate. And one, I mean, an ethno-symbolist argument, one of the ethno-symbolist arguments is that those who speak dialects that are more similar to the center are, are more likely to be easily assimilated. So there are two broad uh, Latin, Latin and French uh, language families. One is the Oi and the other is the Oc, if you like. The Languedoc is the Provençal southern uh, part of France, which is quite, which is structurally more different than the, the Oi dialects in the north. So the north seems to assimilate very quickly. The south takes more time. Um, and actually, if you look today, I can't think of a healthy language region in France. I mean, maybe the Basques and Catalans, but certainly the Alsatians and the, yeah. That in Toulouse, they got street signs in, in York, on right. language, and other towns around there as well, until recent years. So, they don't know what that means, people actually speaking very much. I've heard people telling you that people do speak in still. Well, it's pretty, it's pretty limited. I mean, it's pretty limited, but, but I think what you're seeing there is sort of late 20th century, early 21st century attempts to kind of spice up these regions and brand these regions. I don't think those are living languages in most, in, in most cases. And certainly Brittany, Breton is much less spoken now than it was, say, after the war. So, and similarly with Alsatian, all those languages are really, even as late as, as the Second World War, they were still, a lot of people could speak it, uh, but it's really kind of fading. Now there are some attempts, like Corsica now has a, a national university where there, so, so there are attempts here to try and revive that. This is kind of late 20th century identity politics though, and which you could argue is not exactly the same situation, but, but is related, and we can, we'll have that discussion as well. Um, but what seems to be key is the development of an intellectual elite that can mobilize the public behind a national movement. And it didn't seem to come to fruition for the south of France. Uh, and the Basque, in the Basque and Catalan cases, I think they feed off what's happening south of the border. So I think that's part, part of their success, why they seem to have retained their identity, distinct identity, better than others. Okay, so just to, to move to, to talk about some other aspects of nation building. So we talked about the uh, attempt to have mass public education in an official language. And also part of that is teaching the children the official history of the French Republic or whatever country. So it's giving them a common sense of uh, national memory, teaching them also geography of, of the nation. Uh, and so that is all going to go towards spreading a common standardized national consciousness. So this idea of standardization, of ironing out local differences and getting everybody on the same hymn sheet is very much part of this state nationalism. The other, another dimension of this, which Eric Holmesbaum talks a lot about in the invention of tradition, uh, is the building of monuments and uh, laying out of new cities, naming of streets, and national holidays, which in many cases, Bastille Day. So that's the commemoration of the storming of the Bastille uh, from the French Revolution. That's almost 100 years later, right? 1880 is when we, we get the establishment of Bastille Day. Why is it 100 years later that that happens? Uh, and similarly, the, the German equivalent, the Kaiser Parade from 1876. And in many cases, it's not until this period that we start to see this vogue for 
these uh, mass public displays. So, so these festivals also happen not only in the national capital, that's where they're biggest, but they also happen locally as well. And so it's kind of a, a national expression and national commemoration. Uh, for Hobsbawm, I think he would point very much to this idea that the state had been deepening and extending itself. Like, if you think about the French Third Republic, you've had this gradual process of mass education, newspapers, roads, movement of labor, uh, bureaucratization, mass conscript military, all these things happening, creating this new national outlook. And then you had this tipping point where uh, now that's opened the way to have a kind of mass nationalism where you have these hundreds of thousands of people watching big parades. And all of that stuff starting to, to happen in the late 19th century. So mass commemoration events, uh, mass spectacles are part of it. Now, Along with that, you have uh, construction of, of buildings such as the Eiffel Tower, 1883. Uh, right parades in Germany, which involve you know, demonstra demonstrations by riflemen and gymnasts and so on. So this is a way kind of, of concretizing nationalism and bringing it away from the dusty pages of the textbook into something that's vivid and real. Uh, and so it's, it's for Emile Durkheim, he compares this kind of activity to a tribe worshiping the totem. So it's something similar where all of the nation at the same time observing the same thing. That sense of common emotion, common experience is, is very important. Um, so this is something that, that he thinks is similar between a kind of pre-modern tribe worshiping a totem and or even, even religion and nation. So that the nation is borrowing a lot of the theater uh, that was first developed by religion and tribe. So he sees something similar going on. It's a way of creating social cohesion because everyone has, the, has that shared experience. Uh, or they're remembering sacrifices past or victories past. Now, um, a lot of what I've talked about has been very state-centric, top-down. And increasingly, there are more uh, scholars who are starting to say, well, wait a minute, this isn't the only thing that was going on, this idea that you had the template developed by the elite at the center in Paris or Milan or wherever it was, and, or London, and they just kind of pressed it into the population. It's not such a simple story. They would say, actually, sometimes you could have uh, local jurisdictions interpreting the nation their own way and the sum of all those interpretations uh, creates the nation. So it's a little bit more bottom-up. And I think in the Anglo-Saxon world, particularly in the United States, uh, but also to some extent in the UK and Canada, where the state might not have been quite so interventionist, you still had the emergence of nationalism. It just, in some cases, was uh, driven by other actors. So in the case of the royal tours in, in Canada, for example, I know very well that uh, you had associations, um, so you had loyalist associations, you had the Orange Order, for example, that were involved in these celebrations in each town in organizing. For example, if the Royal Tour was going through a town, then there'd be a, a lot of organization that was involved in that local town itself. So it's not something that the state just did from the top down. Similarly, in the US, uh, Decoration Day, Memorial Day parades after the Civil War, uh, you had the Veterans associations, you have the patriotic societies, uh, even the Masonic, and all these organizations that were involved locally in uh, arranging these commemorations. So, and they would interpret history the way they saw it. So, if, for example, in the South, it was the Confederate Veterans Associations that played a bigger role. In the North, it was the um, Northern uh, well, Federal uh, Veterans. So the Grand Army of the Republic, to these big associations of veterans of the Civil War, they interpreted the nation in their own way. So it was not simply one hymn sheet, one template written by state bureaucrats, because the US had a very weak federal state uh, at this time. Yeah. Uh, so was, was there a special uh, like, uh, department uh, who was dealing especially uh, kind of public, pre-public relations? 
uh, organizing, obviously uh, states were supporting and encouraging, the, encouraging this kind of celebration. So what there, uh, in those times, were there any special department or problem? No, you did have a very developed American uh, bureaucracy, so you really, it really was dependent on local organizing committees, local organization, uh, these, these voluntary associations, patriotic societies, which were huge. They had millions of members. They were very big and powerful. Uh, but also companies, you know, this is the other thing that, that commercial you know, companies would have, you know, bunting up and flags and, you know, it wasn't something that the state directed. In many cases, uh, it was companies and associations and civil society that were arranging this. And there's a kind of a, a debate. People say, now, if you look at Asia, you can compare Philippines, which is more like the United States. It didn't really have a very powerful state nationalism. Thailand, maybe a bit more like France, but the state was more important. So it's to say that you don't have to have it orchestrated entirely by the state. So some of the new writing is suggesting that it's, it can be more ground up, more popular, uh, interpreted by civil society, driven by civil society and businesses rather than the state, which is a kind of a different, different way of thinking about nationalism. Uh, so this idea is not just a, a one-way top-down <coughs> process, and sometimes the masses can have a say in reshaping it, even in, in the case of Germany, uh, where if you were in uh, Hamburg, they had a different view of what Germany was than <coughs> Bavaria. They each wanted to be German, but the, but the Bavarians had their history of, of fighting against the French, or, or maybe, uh, and then the Ham <coughs> in Hamburg, they, they had their history of, of Hanseatic, that Hanseatic uh, past where they saw themselves as a seafaring trading port. And so they saw Germany as a kind of seafaring uh, world power, not as a kind of land-based power. Where in Bavaria, that would be a totally different. So regional and local understandings, each region, each locale, has a slightly different view on what the nation is. And so if you add those up, you get to, to a <coughs> national identity. But it's not exactly the same thing as, as one standard textbook was the French model, one standard history book, one standard textbook, everybody will learn exactly the same thing. Even in France, you could say there were regional differences. Um, how far do you allow the nation people to interpret in their own ways? Is there a danger that we go the wrong way? Well, this is, this, is, this is kind of interesting point. I, I, I myself don't think there is such a danger as long as there are, t you know, there have to be common symbols like a flag or a history. People have to agree on some commonality. But you can have a fair bit of difference, and there actually was a fair bit of difference in the, in the content of nationalism for a lot of people. Um, and, and I think that's not necessarily a bad thing. It seems to work quite well, work for well for the United States. You know, leaving, you know, yes, there was a civil war, but that's a distinct issue. Now, in today's reading, we, yeah. Uh, but probably when you study same history at school, so right. at least, uh, there is no danger to have like different opinions and uh, right. anti-national uh, views. That's true. I mean, if everybody agrees on that history, <coughs> then you've got no problems. I suppose the problem is if you have major disagreements, which you can imagine in most countries there are these fault lines. So it's tricky. If you try and push something that isn't popular locally, you could make make things worse. It just depends on what the pre-existing fault lines are. In the US, it would be North versus South, for example, or White, Black, or whatever. So these are the kinds of fault lines that might exist. <coughs> um, just to say something about uh, the work of Oliver Zimmer, which is in the readings, which talks quite a bit about fascism, but also this idea of nationalizing states, where, in particular, between the First and Second World War, where some countries lost a lot of territory, like Hungary. Other countries gained a lot of territory, like Romania or Czechoslovakia. Uh, the winners, if you like, um, their goal was to assimilate the new territories that they'd taken. Right? So a lot of Hungarians uh, in Transylvania wound up under the Romanian state. A lot of German speakers wound up under the Polish state because Germany lost the war, Hungary lost the war. So what are they going to do? Well, what they're going to try to do is what the French did, assimilate them into the common Polish language. But it's not going to be so easy because they have memories of being part of another country, number one. Number two, they have a different language and outlook. 
So you can see that might be a bit trickier. Uh, but nonetheless, there's an attempt to, yeah. I guess there's a big difference in, in whether which culture scene is more sophisticated. So if you're in, like, you know, obviously the Germans are going to think they come from a more sophisticated culture at this time. And so they would, you know, have this uh, more resistance, I think, than if you're talking about, like, a French uh, peasant thing in some region of France compared to the French language. Yeah, and that's, that's also important, this idea of prestige. And, and Carl Deutsch has written about this. So generally, the less prestigious, what's seen as the less prestigious language tends people tend more to assimilate into what's believed, seen as the higher, more prestigious language. But not always, I mean, especially if they're painful memories of <coughs> conquest and loss. And, you know, but it's not the case that in Eastern Europe, precisely this assimilation was very unsuccessful. And what they really did was transfer of population to, uh, to build a homogeneous nation. Right. Is this well, there's some transfer of population, but there was a lot of attempts to assimilate, too. Um, there was some transfer, but it was also, you know, in the readings, it, it talks about, well, in this case here, um, you know, not allowing kids to be schooled in German, in Poland, for example, or saying that if you want to be in the Polish civil service, you must speak Polish. Uh, we're only going to speak Polish, no bilingualism. And these are all ways that countries try and create <coughs> homogeneity and try and assimilate minorities on their peripheries. And similarly, Ataturk and Turkification, these deliberate processes to try and create the nation, build the nation, uh, majorization in Hungary to assimilate uh, Romanians and Slovakians and others into Hungarian. Now, I just want to say the last few slides talk a little bit about, now, again, we'll start out by talking about what's going on in, in Europe, but very quickly, uh, these ideas are spreading to post-colonial world, and uh, again, the post-colonial <coughs> nations are trying to imitate that French model of first build the state with the state elites, and then assimilate down the social scale and out to the peripheries, get everybody into a common national identity. Uh, and that, as we know, has been a very difficult process, much more difficult in many ways than the French example. Why might that be? Well, <coughs> you had these Western-educated state elites that inherited the colonies from the, inherited the state structures from the colonizers, but they lacked in many cases the resources to bureaucratize, to have capitalism, to have mass education, and to have that uh, common public sphere. Um, in many cases, you have this ethnic diversity, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, which has a very high ethnic diversity. And that makes it very tricky. Now, we want to ask, we might want to ask why there's so much ethnic diversity in Africa, and that's going to be something we'll talk about in a subsequent class. But uh, all of these things make it more difficult for these states to nation build in the same way the French did. Now, they try by, for example, developing a narrative around the father of the nation, such as in Nkrumah in Ghana or Nyerere in Tanzania, and so on, uh, a charismatic leader. But this is not always successful. Even if you could cook up a, try and cook up a narrative about a war of independence, from the colonizer, that too doesn't necessarily work, partly because some parts of the country may have cooperated with the colonizers and fought on their side. So now what are you going to do with them? Uh, this is a, a tricky thing, because in these, in these uh, ethnically diverse um, countries, in Indonesia, for example, the Javanese might have been on the side of uh, the independent side, but the Ambonese might have been fighting with the Dutch. So that could create something tricky. Uh, so, so, what are the problems that the post-colonial state faces that maybe France didn't face? Well, one might be that you don't have, the ethnosimilists would say France had some pre-modern traditions of uh, ethnic state making, which did not exist in most post-colonial uh, societies. And secondly, the ethnosimilists might also argue that you had pre-modern, or you had at least ethnic traditions in many post-colonial states, which again, were a barrier to the um, successful spread of the national idea. And also that integration and communications infrastructures were not that well developed. So relatively weak states were not able to penetrate into the population and into the periphery to the same way the French state was able to do so. So poor roads, perhaps, little taxing and spending, um, lack of military control of the peripheries, 
maybe less economic development. Uh, and then in terms of cultural mass education and cultural standardization there too, perhaps the official language is not widely spoken uh, or you have a fragmented public culture. Now there are a whole lot of other things going on. I mean, we also have to ask why the, uh, the ethnic groups in many of these societies become successfully organized around ethnic parties in ethnic party systems uh, and ethnic movements and why that then, once they get entrenched, that makes it also quite tricky for the state to implicate uh, this common national identity message. But again, if we're talking about a competition between the center and the peripheries, the balance may be more even here. The peripheries have more advantages vis-a-vis -vis the center, whereas in the case of France, perhaps the center had all of the advantages. And that might explain uh, the difference. And so just to, just to finish out here, there are still regions, as we saw in the south of France, where the writ of the state didn't run or where national identity was not yet, had not yet taken hold. And we certainly see this in the case of today's failed states or weak states, places such as Libya and Afghanistan and so <coughs> forth. Can there be a Congolese national identity, an Afghan national identity similar to the French one? Uh, that, could you imagine nation building succeeding in the same way? Maybe, maybe not. There are some other factors that are going to complicate the picture. Uh, so this problem then of not only of, of integration, but also of legitimation. How do you legitimate nation building? How to make it seen as legitimate by those peripheral population? That's something they want to be a part of, rather than something they want to oppose as, as some kind of internal colonialism. Okay, thanks a lot.